turn to the book of Obadiah. I'll read the entire book, which is only one chapter, but uh, the entire book. The vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We've heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up, let us rise against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwellings, who say in your heart, who will bring the, me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves come to you, if plunderers come by night, how you have been destroyed. Were they not still only enough for themselves? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? How Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out. All your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. <clears throat> Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau? And your men, mighty men shall be dismayed, O Teman, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. On the day that you have stood aloft, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth, and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. But do not gloat over the day of your brother and the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah and the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your head, your own head, for you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink, shall think continually, shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and shall be through though they had never been. But in Mount Zion, there shall be those who escape and there shall be holy. And the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire, the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau stubble. They shall burn them and consume them. And there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. Those of the Negev, Negev shall possess Mount Esau, and those of the Cephalah shall possess the land of the Philistines. They shall possess the land of Ephraim and the land of Samaria, and Benjamin shall possess Gilead. The exiles of this host of the people uh, of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zerophathah, and the exiles of Jerusalem are in 
Sepharad, and possess the cities of the Negev. Survivors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. This is the word of the Lord. Be seated, please. I've been a pastor and a teacher for quite a few years. Can you hear me okay? Okay, maybe can you up the bottom just a little bit? A couple of people said no. I'm much more soft-spoken than Josh. So make accommodations for that. But I think I've worried more over this sermon than I have any other sermon over like the last 50 years. I've never preached on Obadiah before. And after you hear <laughs> what Obadiah is about, you maybe understand why I never preached on it before. But it is a book that talks about God's judgment upon a wicked nation. Now, this is not the only book that talks about Edom. We saw in Amos, we saw in Joel, we can look at other places like Jeremiah, Isaiah, they all speak against Edom. In fact, in Jeremiah, some of the same words are used that we have here. So there's question, is there, which came first, Obadiah or Jeremiah? It doesn't, we don't, it doesn't matter, I suppose. <clears throat> but they borrowed, somebody borrowed from the other. In a little bit, as we get through the sermon, I want to talk about application. As I was telling Josh a little while ago, this for me was one of the hardest parts of, of the sermon because other books that we've considered like Amos or Joel are spoken to God's people. And so we can take what's said to them and apply it to us without too much difficulty. But these are words spoken to an ungodly nation, a nation of unbelievers. So how do we apply these words to ourselves? I think I have an answer to that, which we'll get to in a little bit. Just a little caveat. I am from the South, was born in Alabama, grew up there. Heard a lot about the American Civil War and so forth. And um, even when I was younger, tensions were still somewhat high because not so much about the war and what happened, but because of reconstruction afterwards. So what I'm telling you now is a realization of certain realities which were kind of ignored back in the 1860s. In Margaret Mitchell's book, Gone with the Wind, which you may have read, you probably saw the movie, two principal characters are Rhett Butler, who was a blockade runner, and Scarlett O'Hara. Now, as the book opens, we find the setting in at the O'Hara Plantation in Georgia. And Scarlett O'Hara is a, a young debutante who is just uh, kind of crazy silly with a lot of ideas about how young women might look at men and things like that. But the talk is about the coming war the war with the North. 
and pretty much to a man, except for one, everybody said, yeah, once we get in that war, it'll be over in just a few months. I'll be back by Christmas. And that thinking was pretty prevalent throughout the South. There was a lot of thinking that, you know, one good Southern farm boy was worth 10 Northern shopkeepers or accountants or whatever. Now, that idea was pretty well dashed at the Battle of Shiloh, which was in Tennessee, north of Corinth, Mississippi. The first few days of that battle, the Confederates did pretty well. Reinforcements came by way of riverboat on the Tennessee River, and the, the, South, the South lost that battle in a, in a very bad way. So all of a sudden, people realized, hey, these northern shopkeepers can actually fight. The one person who at that uh, party at Terra, who wasn't going to join and fight was Rhett Butler. Now, some of those who were there seemed to think that he was just like a traitor. Why would you not join and fight? And he said, well, just think of everything. What do we have in the South? We have cotton. How do we transport cotton? By the most part, we've transported it by waterways. We send it to the ports. Look at the North. They have factories. They have cannon factories. They have steel mills. They have railroads, which allow them to move. They can move troops as well as uh, munitions pretty easily. And they have a capability that we just don't have. And he didn't think the war would be over in a short time. So when the war did start, the Northern Navy blockaded ports. And all of a sudden they couldn't ship cotton out to other countries or receive supplies. Rhett Butler was a, uh, a gun runner, I guess you would say, but he, he also uh, did other things, but he would run past the blockades and he made, a, he made a fortune. He did join the war toward the very end. And as you know, the war was won by the North. All right. So a little bit more about that and some of the dynamics that were played a little bit later. So what did the South have going against them? One, they were arrogant. They were prideful. They thought they were better than the North in terms of their abilities. And um, they didn't consider the real realities of the situation. We'll see some of those similar thoughts as we look at the country of Edom. And what I want us to see is that those who are staunchly opposed to God will see his wrath. Those who are staunchly opposed to God will see his wrath. Now I have a handout, which uh, may or may not help you, but on the first, or I guess the second page technically, is a map of the greater Middle East. Not all of your pew Bibles have maps. And I wanna make sure you had this. This, when I had to enlarge it, kind of got a little bit fuzzy, I apologize for that. So where is Edom? It's not identified as such on this map, but let me just kind of orient you as to where Edom is located. So obviously the big body of water at kind of the, north, the upper left-hand corner, that's the Mediterranean Sea. We see Memphis 
which is in Egypt. We see kind of where the Nile Delta is. And um, that's kind of where they grow cotton even today. And then you see there's a, a road that goes from the Nile Delta over to Gaza and then up the coast up into um, Syria or Syria. That road was called the Via Maris by way of the sea. Okay, that was one of the major trade routes during ancient times. Now from Egypt, you can see the Red Sea. And if you come down a little bit further, you'll see you know, the Sinai Peninsula. Then there's a body of water, which is kind of covered by a red line, which is a trade route, which is the Gulf of Aqaba. The Gulf of Aqaba is an arm off of the Red Sea. Like the Bay of Green Bay is an arm off of Lake Michigan. But we don't usually say, you know, Lake Michigan, we say Green Bay. Well, here they said Gulf of Aqaba, they didn't say the Red Sea. All right, there was a town there. And then later there was another city built by uh, so Solomon called Ezan Geber with a port. And there were copper mines. They even uh, um, had foundries where they would uh, make, make iron, not steel, but iron. And it was a very lucrative business. So following that red line from the Gulf of Aqaba, kind of runs up east of the Dead Sea, on up east of the Jordan River, up into Damascus, and then actually all the way up into the, the Fertile Crescent. Now from the Dead Sea south to the Gulf of Aqaba, if you kind of drew a, an oval shape there, that was Edom. That was Edom. Now one of the principal cities in Edom was Petra. And Petra was one of those cities that people thought would never be conquered. So in those pictures of uh, some of the ruins, or maybe the first one is not a ruin, but it's just a geographical feature, it's called the Sick, pronounced S-I-C-K, the Sick. This is the way you got into Petra, the city of Petra. There was a small opening in the rock that went about three quarters of a mile it was open at the top. It went up about 80 feet of open area. So defenders could be there. Enemies coming in, man, they can make good mincemeat out of them. But the sick led into Petra. Petra was uh, kind of in the shadow of uh, Mount Seir. But Mount Seir was also like a mountain range. They kind of ran down the vertically down uh, Edom. So the second picture, I don't know if that's from Petra or not. I lose track. I saw so many pictures. And if you're interested in more pictures, go online and look up Petra. And there are any number of pictures of Petra. And most of those have to do with tour companies who will give you a tour of these ruins. So it's a pretty popular place, I guess, to visit. But the last picture, which is this fancy building carved out of the rock, is the Treasury Building in Petra. And there are all kinds of other buildings that are carved into the rock with sandstone, which makes it a little bit softer than, say, granite. And people would live in those, have their houses, though some of these were kind of high up in the mountains and so forth. So Edom felt itself sort of protected from the, uh, the normal ravages of war because of their location. 
that who's going to come and take us? You know, they don't know. Now, that one highway that runs from the Gulf of Aqaba up to Damascus in the Fertile Crescent is called the King's Highway. So the two principal trade routes going from Egypt north would be via Maris and then the King's Highway. Now, the King's Highway is mentioned in numbers because after the Israelites had wandered in the wilderness for like 40 years, they were ready to go in and conquer the land. So they come up to Edom, and the Edomites are descendants of Esau. So they are their relatives, or sometimes they're called their brothers. So Moses said, hey, let's use the king's highway. We're going north. We won't you know, use any of your grass, tend of your water, nothing. We just want to just get through your land. They said no. He asked a second time. They said no. So they kind of skirted Edom kind of came around on the, under the north of Edom. And north of Edom was Moab. They go into Moab. Then the Ammonites came out and uh, fought them. They conquered the king of Ammon, took the land of Ammon, the Ammonites. And then from there, they went west across the Jordan River and continued the battle in the land of Canaan. All right, that's all I'm gonna tell you about Edom right this moment. <laughs> But just tell you who they are, where they're located. Because I don't think most of us really kind of had a good idea about all of that. And on the back is a, a general outline of what I want to talk about. Now, a lot of what is said in this passage doesn't necessarily mean a lot to us, uh, places and things like that. But it does start out by saying the vision of Obadiah. This is back under my first point. God's judgment against Edom, the vision of Obadiah. So just a reminder that what, he, what Obadiah is saying is a word that he received from the Lord. Now, we don't know how he got, what, how he saw the vision. Was it in a dream? Was he sitting someplace and he had something kind of in front of him? We don't know. But he got a word from the Lord, which he's communicating to Edom, and it's not pretty. Now, we know when uh, some of these other minor prophets we've been looking at, I mean, there was some pretty harsh stuff that was said. This is about as harsh as it's going to get. There's not much to look at in this passage in the way of, of mercy or grace. Just a small inkling of that at the very end. So what do we see in these first few verses? Like verses 2 through 9. I'm not going to read it again. You can read it. We talked about Edom's arrogance, Edom's pride. They lived in houses of carved rock. They're people who lived in high mountains. It, this, this is a, in, in a poetic setting. And sometimes Hebrew poetry is a little bit hyperbolic, hyperbolic, because I have a hard time saying that. It's a bit over the top. Like they didn't live in the stars or anything like that. But they lived in, in, on mountainsides. They falsely believed what their arrogance told them was true. They believed in something which wasn't true. They were not unconquerable. 
they stood secure for a long time. The Romans went in, destroyed the land, took Petra. But they thought they were unconquerable. As I was thinking about this, I was reminded of things that I hear people say here in TV programs and some movies and so forth. We all know that domestic violence is real. People get married, it doesn't always work out as well as we would like, and there is emotional, physical, maybe sometimes sexual abuse, one partner against the other. And yet, at the same time, at least, at least the things I watch, whenever there are depictions of, say, a homosexual couple, it's always, you know, just uh, roses and, and uh, you know, unicorn dust and all this kind of stuff. It's, you know, it's perfect. You know, that's, that's what we need to strive for. Or even for uh, just people just living together. But what sociologists have found is domestic violence in unmarried couples is greater than in married couples. And that was sort of a surprise. In the article I was reading, they said, we expected since many people were not getting married anymore, just living together, there wouldn't be the domestic violence. Because marriage, obviously, causes domestic violence. But they found that it was even greater, in many cases, upon people who just live together. And there was a, an article in the Atlantic Magazine a few years ago talking about same-sex violence, which was a silent uh, um, horror. So that domestic violence among homosexual couples is even greater than in married couples. Now, you don't ever hear that on television. I've never seen that in any TV program I've watched. It's always sort of the very opposite. But there are people who believe in a lie and stake a lot of their life on that lie, okay? That's what the Edomites were doing. So what was the shame of the Edomites? What did they do? Well, there was some debate about the date when this was written, but a lot of the scholars that I was reading thought that this really happened in conjunction with the attack by Babylon on Jerusalem. So that when Babylon came and attacked Jerusalem, the Edomites didn't try to stop it but, and they didn't actually join in and help in the fighting. I don't think that would have happened. But they were sort of standing there cheering them on. And not only that, and, and this is what, um, I forget who said it, but one of the things that, one of the people I was reading said, more than likely, when the Babylonians came, Judah would have surged her troops from some of the surrounding areas and cities into Jerusalem to defend Jerusalem. So they left these other cities unprotected. So it may be that Edom went into these places and killed some of the Judeans, took their possessions and so forth, because it says Edom acted like foreigners who cast lots for Jerusalem. 
So there was gloating over the ruin of Jerusalem and of Judea. It says they cut off fugitive fleeing and turned them over to the attackers. So they may have well have killed some of the people who were trying to flee, or they may have captured them and turned them over. So not very good stuff. I'm not going to go through verse by verse all the things that took place. And what I've just said as a summary is probably sufficient for you to understand why the Lord is so, so unhappy with, with Edom. But then we come to verse 14, where we think we're going to have a little glimmer of hope. It says, for the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. And so it seems like we're seeing here where there's a shift from talking specifically about Edom, but now other nations which are like Edom. And Edom kind of stands for those ungodly nations and those wicked nations who have not worshipped God or treated his people nicely. says it'll be, it's a day of darkness and not light. It doesn't say that here. We've seen that in other minor prophets that we've read, like in Amos. It's not going to be what a lot of people expect. It contrasts with the days, the happenings, which are temporal, and what happens in the day of the Lord will be things that are going to be eternal. It'll be a time of judgment on all the nations who oppose God. Now, we read from the book of Revelation, chapter 14, kind of a very graphic picture where the wicked are said they're thrown into this wine press and just are trampled by the Son of God. But I'd like you to turn back to the book of Isaiah, chapter 63. Verse 1 says, Isaiah 63, 1, Who is this who comes from Edom in crimson garments from Basrath? He who is splintered in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength, his eye speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red? Your garments like he who treads in the winepress. I have treaded the wine press alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. And it kind of goes on talking about the Lord's wrath against Edom because of their sin against Judah. Very similar to the words we hear in Revelation 14. So Edom is a picture of the wrath of God on the ungodly. But we are told that salvation will be in Mount Zion, which is a word of hope. 
Salvation will be in Mount Zion. Who ultimately comes from Mount Zion? It's the Lord. It's Jesus. That's where he secured salvation for us. He wasn't born in Jerusalem, but he died in Jerusalem. And his life was a life of sacrifice and of ransom. His blood was shed in our place, and our sins were toned in him at that place. So justice is served on the, the Edomites. There's kind of a, I guess, a graphic little saying there in verse 12. It says, all the nations are called by me. No, I'm sorry. I got the wrong verse here. Um, I lost my place. It's where uh, Jacob is going to be fire and Edom is going to be stubble. So they're, it's, it's a done deal, as it were. It's a done deal. Verse 18, I'm sorry. Uh, yes, verse 18. Okay, now, we get to the very end of the book, and there's a series of these triplet statements that culminate in verse 21. Savior shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. So saviors in the pearl probably refer to some of the deliverers that Judah had that came along, but the Savior is obviously going to be Christ. It says the kingdom shall be the Lord's. This is where we see a little glimmer of mercy and grace from the Lord. It's not going to come from Edom or Mount Esau. It's going to come from Jerusalem. All right. Now, how do we apply this? Well, in God's providence, I've been preparing for the next LAMP seminary course, which is on evangelism and apologetics. So what did Edom need to hear? Was it not the gospel? What do the ungodly nations need to hear? The gospel. And we don't usually talk about it this way because the gospel is very positive and we want to try to win people to Christ by sharing the good news. But the opposite or the flip side of the coin of the gospel is God's judgment. Someone said, everybody is going to meet Christ either as your savior or your judge. And that's true. So if anything, I think this passage should be one to kind of motivate us to realize that we live in a country 
not exactly like Edom, but uh, not far off. We live in a world that's filled with ungodly people and nations. And we have a message of hope that we need to carry to people. There's one passage in the New Testament that scares me. Matthew 7, 21 and 23. Jesus speaking toward the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do mighty works in your name? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I hope that scares you too. It's not because we're members of the PCA that we're going to be saved. It's not because we're good people we're going to be saved, but because we do believe in Christ and we do those things which he's commanded us to do. Or as Peter says in 2 Peter, that we're to make our calling and election sure. We don't save ourselves, but if we're saved, if we say we're saved, there should be some evidence of it in how we live. We are in a spiritual war. Whether we want to be or not, we are. And one of Satan's chief weapons are lies. Didn't Jesus say of him, he's a father of lies? So a lot of the stuff you hear in our culture, which you know is not true, I would say had its root in Satan. And people seem to believe in the lie more than they believe in the truth. I don't know why that is, but they do. I can give you just a quick example. Some years ago, when I was still active in the Navy Reserve, there was a training course in New York on Governor's Island, where the Coast Guard had their headquarters there at the time. And a bunch of us, uh, one time at lunchtime, we could go down to Times Square and grab some lunch down there. There were probably about six or seven chaplains, all Protestant chaplains. We all had, uh, we had a khaki uniform, had a cross on our left uh, collar to show what branches of the what corps we were in, in the Navy. And we're on a subway and a lady was sitting across from us and uh, she said, where are you guys from? And one of the guys said, well, we're Navy chaplains and we're just going to Times Square to get some lunch, whatever. And she said, no, I don't believe that. He said, why not? So you have, you have a cross on your collar. You couldn't do that in the United States Navy. So others are saying, no, we are chaplains. This is our core device to show that we're Christian chaplains and so forth. She didn't believe us. I think it was me who finally, after about 10 minutes of this, I said, you've got us. We're actually in the Norwegian Navy. I said, oh, okay, that makes sense. You guys speak English pretty well, though. Another guy said, well, we had a lot of experience over the years. And, I, and we were talking about that later. How could somebody disbelieve six people telling her the same thing 
but believe a lie. I don't, I don't know, but that's just one of the way it is with our human nature. Even before the fall, didn't Eve believe the lie rather than God? Okay. Well, we do realize that in this world, there are going to be nations that are opposed to the gospel. There are going to be churches that are opposed to the gospel. And we have to do battle with those entities as best we can, trying to put forth the truth. So in just a minute, I'm going to just advocate that you really study your Bible diligently. Because everything you do has a consequence. I mentioned the, uh, some things about the Civil War a little bit earlier. So everybody knows who the uh, president of the Confederacy was? Anybody? Jefferson Davis, yeah. You may or may not have known that before that, he served as Secretary of War for the United States. Secretary of War for the United States. He seemed to be somewhat fascinated with railroads so he made sure that the North had plenty of railroads to transport their goods, even had routes surveyed to the Pacific. And one of the routes that were surveyed was actually used going through Utah. But he also modernized the United States Army, bringing in new weapons. He increased the size of the United States Army. He improved the pay. He basically made the United States Army a professional army. So when the war started, all those things worked against him, but worked in favor of the North, right? Now, I don't disparage what he did. He did what was right when he did it, but there was a consequence for that action. You need to read your Bibles and not just read your Bible, but know the Bible. When you read the Bible, know what other passages would be parallel passages. In fact, if you don't know these Old Testament books, some of them we've been studying, you come to the book of Revelation, you really are going to be somewhat lost. But a lot, in fact, most of the imagery that we find in Revelation, we find in the prophets and minor prophets. So know the Bible. Know it so well that if somebody says something which is not true, immediately something, a red flag goes up in your, main, your brain. You say, wait a minute, that's not right. And you can counter whatever it is that's being said. Pray. Some years ago, there was an expression, I, I don't hear it anymore, but it was be prayed up. Because when adversity comes, you may not have time to pray. So be prayed up. So what are you talking about? Well, some years ago, I was in a very bad car accident. Another car veered in my lane, kind of last minute before I could do anything, kind of hit the driver's side of the car, killed a passenger in the back seat. I was in the hospital for a few days. And somebody said, did you pray for the, before the wreck? I said, no, I didn't have time to pray. I saw this car veering over. And I was trying to get out of the way best I could. So things like that happen. So we have to pray continually. 
and pray that God would protect us from those fiery darts of the evil one. We need to learn how to talk to people who are lost. In Rocky three, Rocky's trainer, Mickey, said to Rocky, the worst thing that happened to you that can happen to any fighter, you got civilized. Now take what I was saying with a little bit of grain of salt, but the worst thing that can happen to a Christian is to become a nice person. Well, I don't want to associate with them. They're, they drink all the time or they're, you know, they're always talking dirty about stuff or whatever. We have to understand that we have to know people in order to communicate with them. And there are sometimes, you know, like Jesus, he wasn't always in the, the house of the Pharisees. He had dinner with people who were sinners. I'm not saying you have to go around and spit and cuss. I don't mean that. What I mean is that you need to realize where you came from and what you believe now compared to what you believe then. And how did you come to faith in Christ? There had to be somebody that was involved in some way, shape, or form. So you can be the person who does minister to someone else in that regard. And finally, some years ago, I was at a PCA General Assembly in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. It's a long time ago. And there was one of those, uh, you know, conferences or, or many conferences had a special speaker. It was Jack Miller, who was pastor from Pennsylvania. And there were a bunch of us, maybe about 30 of us sitting in a circle around him. He was talking to us. And he said, you know, sometimes reformed faith gets in the way of evangelism because you guys want to be so careful not to say anything wrong that you don't say anything. And we're all kind of saying, well, that's true, I guess. He said, my guess is you could take things that you would absolutely chuckle at, like the four spiritual laws. You could take those four spiritual laws, you could sit down with somebody, and you can share the gospel. Is that true? It is true. He said, the problem is you don't know, it's not that you don't know the gospel, but you're afraid to speak the gospel. Let us not be people who were afraid to speak the gospel, but to realize that we have Edom right at our doorstep and we need to warn them of God's judgment, which is to come and the salvation, which is available through Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we know that what happened to Edom was not, not pleasant. And what will happen to the ungodly nations is not pleasant either. We pray that you would use us, even us, as part of that core of ambassadors that are sent into the world to tell people the good news of faith in Christ. Lord, we, we know the gospel. We know what Christ has done. We know who he is. Help us to be able to share that with those who are in Christ's name. Amen.